An old online friend of mine and I got to talking a little while ago. Then the subject of his old website came up. It went by Creepy Toys and it ran from 2007 to 2009, letting users submit stories and pictures of, well, really creepy kid stuff. I was a moderator on the message board, which was its biggest focus. Traffic, like my friend's interest, tapered off and he moved on, but not before backing up thousands of posts to his computer. This was old and crappy freeware forum software, and users posting were only recorded by IP addresses, so all of the names in regards to their post have been lost, other than ours. He sent me a copy of the backups, and I'm going through them. As much as this trains my eyes after a while, it's all database source only. One story in particular, which I vaguely remembered, stood out for a reason that I'll explain at the end. The original poster evidently got a hold of someone's personal writings, or had simply forwarded them from another source. Without going into further detail, here's the post, all cleaned up. My therapist asked me to start writing a journal, or maybe a recollection of past events, whatever I thought was best. A few years ago, I would have thought that writing down my feelings and thoughts were pointless, as was seeing a therapist in the first place. I thought I got a handle on things on my own. You know, doing the macho act of not asking for outside help. I guess things changed when I saw an old friend a month ago, and every explanation and excuse I'd come up with and made into my own personal reality was thrown out the window. There was a sense of vindication after I left that friend's house. But with it came a dreaded truth. I've never told this story to anyone outside of my childhood friends, and through my accounts to the local police who had me repeat it over and over. But only one of us was actually there when it happened, the only one who really saw it. I never liked talking about myself, but Dr. Strauss said that uh, doing so would be cathartic, a release that I needed to have for a chance at further progression. Before I started my sessions, I would have never bothered. It was only recently that I put things together and accepted the facts of that day. It was 15 years ago, the late summer of 1998. I had just graduated middle school and I was glad to be getting out of that hellhole, as were a few of my other friends. We didn't all go to the same school or were in the same grade, but we all lived in the same neighborhood. It was a nice enough place, not far from the water ports and harbors in Pensacola, Florida, a city tucked in the northwest of the state, right by Alabama and Georgia borders. As you might imagine, summer was hot and muggy, and the town didn't have too many attractions for kids so we spent a lot of our time playing video games and going outside to look for something to do. Often inventing sports or stupid brutish games, <laughs> we were a group of six boys when we all got together. Our parents all knew each other for the most part. Despite a few rivalries and some fights amongst us over the years, we all got along pretty well, all growing up within a mile of one another. I don't want to say too much about them because we've all broken apart over the years and I don't know where we've all ended up, or how we've dealt with what happened. The last thing I want to do is have the story somehow go public or get big or something. And then some reporter goes out tracking us down and opening up old wounds that some of us might have healed by now. Anyway, here are the first names and some overly generalized descriptions of their personalities. Just, just please remember that these were actually people, not cartoons. So. So whenever some douchebag gets a hold of the journal and decides to make a TV movie out of it. I guess I've become a little bit paranoid over the years. First, there's me, Justin. You'll find enough about me throughout the story, so I won't bother sharing anything about myself here. Brian was always fairly mellow. Just kind of followed us around with a few hesitations. I didn't know his parents well, but they must have raised him something proper. A few times we went out to be little teenage bastards, he'd always only just watch, never knocking over garbage cans or vandalizing or anything like that. Not that any of that was ever my idea. No, those boredom-killing brain farts were strictly externalized from Devin. He looked like a bully, but he was never actually mean to anyone, as bossy as he could be. He was the biggest of the group, but not terribly overweight. I think he must have had ADHD growing up, and he was always getting into trouble often dragging us right down with him. Gilbert. <laughs> Swear to God, that was his name, and yeah, uh, he got a lot of flack for it. 
He was the nerdy one, the only one with glasses. He was damn smart, over-technical for his age. It was a miracle he never got sucked by any of us. After he finished listening to one of our conversations and then interjected some facts with the intake of mucus followed by a raised index finger and annoying, actually. But again, he was smart and creative and can make up some good jokes on the fly because of it. And then we have the fraternal twins, Peter and Nick. Not terribly interesting names, but at least their parents decided not to be asshats and give them something cute and stupid like Bobby and Robbie. They looked only a little alike and Peter was always about an inch taller than his brother. They both had dirty blonde hair and matching blue eyes, but that's where the similarities ended. Peter was energetic and into sports and was a bit of a loud mouth and Nick was pretty quiet. He never seemed to be very good at anything that he tried. Well, other than video games, he can kick our collective asses in almost any genre. I was a casual gamer, preferring to spend my time outside and only rent games from a nearby video library, which are all gone now. But I did have several systems. Nick was typically the kid to introduce us to the latest hot title. From the day it came out, and we all went to the twins' house to play it, we had all been addicted for the past year to Goldeneye for the Nintendo 64. It was real hot shit back then. Real talk of the class whenever it came up. Playing it automatically just made you cool. The game led to many late night sleepovers, sometimes lasting until the first morning light in the summer. Uh, we played other things, of course, mostly Mortal Kombat and Mario Kart, but the epic James Bond shooter was a crown jewel. Four player games were awesome, man. 10 minutes of shooting each other in the face and being blown up with mines and rocket launchers. The two lowest scoring players would trade with the two spectators of the previous game, and, and those watching for a round would usually go scrounge for a soda or snacks. They were really good times for us, and sharing the game together put a few inventive thoughts into my mind for a new game of our own. We still had to do something during the daylight hours that we would rather spend outside. After I threw out the idea of a real-life first-person shooter, we quickly came up with the idea of a game simply called Guns. Yeah, the name really showed how creative we can be. It started as an advanced game of hide-and-seek. After a few free-for-all rounds, we found splitting into two or sometimes even three teams was more fun. This sounds, this sounds kind of lame, I know. But the game's origins had us running and hiding and setting up ambushes along the three main blocks of the neighborhood. The goal was to sneak up on someone, put your hands out in the shape of a gun and yell, BANG! Before the other guy could react. Then he was dead and had to go wait in the KIA zone. Sometimes, though, we captured them instead and had him turn on his team. Going indoors was against the rules, as was going to anyone else's property other than our own yards. Still, the neighborhood provided a fun landscape. Cars, fences, trees, and bushes all became barricades. Sometimes, we'd even climb into the branches to hide, waiting for a prey to get close, since you could contest a distant hit as a miss. The closer you could fire, the more likely the other kid is to omit their death. And hiding was as important as sneaking around. The back of Brian's dad's pickup truck was a particularly good place to hide. Many lives were claimed in that driveway. To keep things fresh, the game evolved quickly. Walkie-talkies were soon used to let teams separate and keep in communication with one another. We made up more pretend weapons than just hand pistols, like the long-range arm rifle and invisible rapid-fire machine gun. But it was dawning on us how ridiculous it was starting to look. Especially to the passerby jogger, dog walker, the civilians we shared the neighborhood with. So we started trying other guns. But nothing worked quite as well as our simple phantom weapons. Water guns are nice on hot days. And once we tried out water balloons as grenades, if the splash hit you, uh, you were dead. But the range was, of course, poor. And if you forgot to pump it, you'd just end up with a sad little trickle of water that couldn't reach your target, after which they'd spray you back a middle laugh or two. I mean, it was kind of cool finding sources of water around the blocks for refills. You know, ammo caches. The one time we tried nerf guns, uh, ended in resounding failure. Not only was their range also poor, but we lost half the darts we fired. Like water guns, these were toys meant for running around like an idiot in the backyard. That wasn't what we wanted. We liked the thrill of the hunt, the team play, the ambushes, the double crosses, the crushing defeat, the strategy. We had to perfect our game somehow, with something better. I think I should mention that 
Nick and I took the whole thing a little bit more seriously than the others. If having Gilbert on your team gave you a strategist, Devin provided you with a fearless berserker. Brian was a patient soldier who can hide for long periods of time, and Peter was your jack-of-all-trades grunt. Then Nick and I, who were average at best, wanted a different rule. We, we were the game masters. We set the rules and began to map out entire levels within the neighborhood, complete with boundaries. A few times we even hid little flags around that, if held, gave you power-ups like a second life or 10 seconds of invincibility once you held it up and declared it, letting someone slip past enemy fire unharmed. Guns filled up much of our summer. It was like we were programmers and beta testers to start a virtual reality game, but it still lacked a solid set of armaments. We didn't need to get too technical or introduce things like having to reload, but we did need something that had a long, precise range that would not only bring out our true individual skill, but also get rid of the time wasting. Uh-uh, you didn't hit me, argument resulting from fired invisible bang bullets. On my birthday, we made a reservation for the fun center, where I sometimes played mini golf with my parents. It was a pretty cool place with arcade machines and prizes and even a go-kart track. I think a lot of kids have grown up near and frequented similar venues. Last time I was there, I realized that they had a laser tag arena, and that was something that we just had to try. I had also investigated paintball at this point, but I figured we were a bit too young for it, and I didn't like the idea of only having some boring backwoods to play in, or strapping on all that gear. I also feared the pain from being hit, though I'm sure my stupid childish fear was exaggerated, of course. On top of that, you had to pay to play. We liked our freedom to play however long we wanted to in our neighborhood. As crappy as our gear was. But I figured laser tag was worth a try. And it wasn't that costly. I walked out of our 15 minute session disappointed. It wasn't terrible by any means, but I expected so much more. The indoor arena was made up of crappy plywood forts and was lit with black lights and glowing star stickers. The obnoxious loud techno music really removed the element of strategy. Since we couldn't hear ourselves talk much less listen into our enemy's footsteps in a small arena. Still, it did introduce me to laser guns. The few times anyone managed to score a hit, their vest lit up and buzzed loud. The guns even made realistic sound effects and felt, well, real in our young teenage hands. We may have spent most of our time in the chamber running around like idiots trying to learn how to play, but my heart was still pumping throughout the whole game. What was the most awesome was just how accurate these things were, and the very idea of shooting an invisible light at a target across the room and hitting them instantly and assuredly, ah, this was just mind-blowingly cool for us. Now would be a good time to emphasize that none of us were gun nuts, and I don't think any of our parents even owned any. And out of the six of us, only Gilbert, somewhat ironically, uh, I guess you can call it, joined the military, though I don't think it was a position where he actually held a weapon. It was just a phase for us, another cool thing that would have run us course eventually. However long, guns might have fulfilled our needs. We knew it was going to be fun while it lasted. I was an only kid. The other five all had at least one sibling. And that meant that I had to rely on my friends for human contact, and my parents spoiled me. Dad especially. I wasn't some needy little tool who had to have the newest thing and a lot of it. I could restrain myself. But it always seemed that when the time came that I did ask for something, my dad would give it to me in spades. Like, no expense was too great and he was always eager to please. I wanted my own set of laser guns to surprise the guys with. So, one Friday night, we headed out to Target to see what we could find. It took some looking in their big old toy section since I wasn't sure what aisles the guns would be in, but sure enough, they had what I was looking for in stock. On the shelves, on the back wall, past the aisle with micro-machines. <laughs> I miss those things. I used to collect them. Uh, it was a brightly colored box with some stupid happy boys on it. One of them holding a comically oversized gun. The other smiling idiotically as he was shot in the back. I was already sold. The toys were called Laser Challenge. And were expensive. I think $40 each. But Dad was happy that I was so earnestly excited about the things. I didn't even know they existed before we went looking, figuring that laser guns might have been restricted to places like the Fun Center. He bought four sets, each of us carrying two boxes up to check out. The problem was that they only had four in stock, four groups of guns, vest, and backpacks total. 
He knew as well as I did that I needed two more sets if all six of us would be playing. Dad found out about our game not long after we started, and Mom was a little worried that I was being indoctrined by gun culture. And Dad just laughed it off. That's just the way she was. Boys will be boys, right? And as long as I was going outside getting exercise, nah, they were both happy. I made my grievances known as soon as we got back to the car, knowing that I was just stating the obvious. Dad promised that we would get another two sets, suggesting that we should test them out first anyway in a four-player game. He was nice enough to buy them for me in the first place, so I ended up agreeing with him. Two of the boys would have to sit out the first few games, maybe even act like scouts or spies. But on the way home, we sold a local Goodwill store. Dad and I traded glances, each knowing what the other one was thinking. Mom got some of her dresses from the store, and Dad would bring home quirky little handmade things whenever he stopped by. But I never felt much of interest there, and I didn't like the feel or idea of secondhand stuff. Despite that, I knew that it was worth a look. Maybe they even had another set or two for cheap. It was late by then, near closing time from what I remember, and the checkout lines were filled with shoppers. Many of the mothers with bored kids, their arms full of worn and faded clothing. Just for fun, I checked out the video game section first, but most of the games were still from the last generation. Since they weren't what I was here for anyway, I hurriedly guided my dad to the back where the used toys were. I always hated the smell there, the one of mildew on dirty diapers, so I didn't want to stay long. We looked around for a bit, but the toy section was so small that much of his space was intruded upon by old VCRs and crappy televisions playing Disney movies on loop. It became obvious quickly that our search would be fruitless, but then again, I wasn't too disappointed. I was happy with what I had for now. As we turned to head out and return home, I noticed a black cardboard box hanging out just a little behind an ugly till shelf littered with the broken corpses of stuffing spewing teddy bears. I was going to leave it be, figuring it was a moldy toy tomb by now. But then I saw the shape of a gun on the box's side. Was this really happening, I thought? I rushed up to it and pulled it out with some effort as it was snug between the shelf and the wall. My reaction upon pulling it out and looking at the cover was unmitigated joy. Like, it was all of a sudden Christmas morning. The first thing I saw were two handguns held by a pair of admittedly badass but typical 80s white kids holding them upright like they were spies. The guns didn't need to be overly stylized like the laser challenge ones in any way. They spoke for themselves. The box was solid black, except for the photo cut out on the front of the two kids. A swirling James Bond gun barrel that ended in a white circle behind them. Sure, it was clearly a knockoff image, but it naturally excited me even further, given that Goldeneye was still my favorite video game goddess at the time. And the guns were depicted accurately, positioned in the youth's hands at an angle to show as much detail as possible. The box's paint was chipped in spots all across it, and the cover was especially faded, but it still looked pretty damn cool. I wonder what lucky kids must have passed this on over the years. Judging by its look, I had to guess it was quite old. And I was right. In the corner, I saw a copyright of the year 1980-something. The last digit had been replaced by raw cardboard where the paint was completely gone, but the age of the product didn't bother me too much. I remember wondering, even back then, that a set of laser guns from the 1980s must have been quite pioneering. These had to be expensive ones. I opened the box and saw the quality put into the toys. Yeah, the cover didn't lie. Better yet, there were two pairs of guns and frontal hit detector vest, held firmly in an oversized styrofoam mold, indicative of the past decade's environmental lack of foresight. I pried one of the guns out. It was small, but it had some real weight to it, and the build quality was quite good. It was made of a strong, solid black plastic and had a few metal trimmings purely for aesthetic to make it look like a toy. The tip of the barrel where the laser was fired out was also made of this metal as was the trigger in the iron sight. It quickly occurred to me how dangerously real this thing looked. A sharp contrast to the orange and gray laser challenge weapons. If it weren't for the swirling metal bezel around the edges that gave it more of a juvenile appearance, someone was just asking it to get shot by the cops waving this thing around. By this point, Dad had come over, giving me an impressed, <laughs> whoa, what did you find? He knelt down to the floor to examine the set for himself, and then he noticed something on the gun I was still holding. They pointed it out to me, and I was surprised I haven't seen it yet. 
On the back of the iron sights were two green glowing dots. They didn't blink or waver when seen at different angles like normal LEDs. And furthermore, there was no on or off switch for them, or the gun itself, or battery compartments anywhere. These things were solid. And these things were solid, sturdy creations that could have easily been mistaken for real guns, and we could even tell how they were powered. Neither my dad or I knew what to make of the eternal lights, but we did think they were kind of cool. I would learn later in life that the lights were made out of tritium, a radioactive element used for illumination on some real guns and watches, or other equipment that, for whatever reason, needed a constant but small source of light. Tritium is safe, at least for a radioactive material, but it was still an element that shed its atoms. When I found out about it later in life, I researched it. I also learned that it was a key component in nuclear weapons. Had either of us realized such an ominous fact about some of the material used in a damn child's toy, I knew my dad would have never bought it. The vest looked a little bit more friendly, although the problem was they only had frontal sensor boxes. No backpacks like the American units. Their bodies were made of plastic and had a single black circle in the middle where the incoming laser was detected. The four leather straps were attached to the back of the device, held onto it with an old metal buckle, which was another sign of the toy's age. I hadn't seen any toys made of this kind of metal at rust since I was a little kid, and that was exactly what the buckles were made of. They had withered in an ugly brown husk, their metal components grinding against one another and producing iron dust, but they were the only parts of the entire set that hadn't aged well. The rest of it was high quality. If not slightly creepy in that kind of old, strange, industrial toy kind of way. Dad noticed that the back of the sensor units were made of a thin layer of solid, flat metal, and there was a noticeable latch. He popped it open fairly effortlessly, and reacted quickly to catch the large battery that dropped out. It looked familiar, like the six-bolt battery used on one of Dad's emergency flashlights, but it was solid blue, no wording at all, and the bulk was distributed differently. It was fatter, Wider than the kind of oversized batteries I was used to. Inside the shell, I noticed a small dial, but I didn't touch it just yet. Dad put the battery back in and closed the hatch. He told me that he had a hunch that this thing wasn't made in America and wanted to see the front cover. I flipped it over and noticed something that I should have earlier. The words, even the product name, weren't in English. It was a language that I wasn't familiar with. Almost alien to me. But Dad, older and wiser, identified it as Arabic. I thought it was strange, since the box looked so American. I was disappointed again, believing that the laser gun toy from a different country wouldn't work with the other sets, and I breathed out an audible sigh. Dad noticed it and quickly cheered me up a little again when he pointed out something on the box. It was poorly translated, but it was English. In one corner was the humorous but promising words, works with many type. Seeing how much I liked the toy already, Dad told me to wait a moment. He left the store and came back in after a minute, one of the laser challenge pistols in his hand. And he flicked the switch on the foreign set's vest, making the black circle light up with a monotone chime. A few dozen red LEDs were behind the clear plastic, though a few had burned out. He gave the toy pistol a test fire at point blank, aimed it straight at the hit zone, and it worked, much to my delight. The vest fired a small little digitized buzz. One fourth of the lights disappeared. After a second hit, another fourth went dark. Dad looked as if he figured something out and opened the hatch again to show me something. The vest had a hit point system and the doll can control how much damage a single hit can do. By turning it all the way to four, a single shot could remove all the quadrants of the health circle. It was a cool feature, but as we always played one hit kills, I knew I would be keeping it all the way up. It wasn't as if our American sets had options anywhere. The last thing I took note of in the middle of the target circle was a slightly bigger red dot, which had a flat head, unlike the dome tops of the other lights. Its color was also a little bit darker, as if it was wearing out, but both vests were identical in this regard, so I paid little mind to it. We couldn't find a sheet of instructions anywhere, and my dad still had hesitations. Although the system did seem to work fine, we tested all the guns and vests and Dad even went back to his car a second time to fetch one of the cheap plastic hitboxes from the other set that had what looked like orange traffic barricade lights for their sensors. Again, everything was cross-compatible. It looked like it was a done deal once we found the faded peeling price tag. 
It was $20 for the complete set. It seemed like a really good bargain. And this is where you might expect the person ringing us up to see the object in question and say something cryptic or give us a frightening or glad to have that out of here look. This is where you might expect the person ringing us up to see the object in question and say something cryptic. Or uh, give us a frightful or glad to have that out of here look. But the old lady at the register was clearly tired and ready to go home. And any other time, she probably wouldn't have known anything about the toy in any case. Dad paid for it and we walked out of the store, just as it was closing. The next day, Saturday, I knew it would be awesome. When the gang got together at the twins' house after lunch, I revealed the sets and they were excited about the whole idea of having our own laser guns. The foreign sets, of course, took the spotlight over the American ones. Brian suggested that we do some paper rock scissors to see who would get to use them, but after a debate, in the end, I claimed one of them, having been the one to find them. We had to compensate a bit, since the foreign units didn't have a backpack unit, making sneak attacks from the rear impossible on its wearers. This would be a huge disadvantage to the others, so we simply kept the American rear hit pack sets inside. It was sort of lame, only being able to land an official hit on someone's front side, which meant waiting for them to simply turn around to actually kill them if you were stalking behind them, but I mean, we would deal with it. <clears throat> it was sort of lame, only being able to land an official hit on someone's front side, which meant waiting for them to simply turn around to actually kill them if you were stalking behind them, but we would deal with it. Nick was a little offended at first, after I explained the reason he should get the other. He usually died first, and the most often. And he was a lousy shot. Quite an accomplishment, considering the accuracy of imagined slugs. But his brother Peter agreed with the handicap. And with that, we were off for a day of team death matches around the neighborhood. Gil and Brian were in my team for the first time, and we kicked ass. A solid score of 3-0. to zero. After that, I took on... After that, I took Nick and Devin. So both of the old sets were on a single team. Devin got taken down, but Nick and I were untouched by a long-range ambush that took place on one of the block's curves. This was the first indication that these old sets really were a higher quality, or at least more powerful than the others. While Devin shot three or four times before he was hit, none of them made impact on Peter, Brian, and Gil. But the guns that Nick and I had took out the entire enemy team, one right after the other after we took a second to steady our aim. After the third game, we realized that having two boys with the old sets on one team gave them an unfair disadvantage, having skimmed the manual for the American toys. I remembered reading how sunlight could interfere with the laser. I mean, that made sense, but it seemed like the advertised 200 feet range was also a lie in the first place. As Gil reported, he had to get within 50 feet to land a hit with his little gray plastic gun, but the black ones, however? We took a break to figure out the range by doing a few tests. Having Brian back up about 10 feet until Peter's hits with my black gun no longer registered. He had to be clear across the block, some 500 feet away, and even in direct sunlight, until his vest stopped buzzing. We all thought once again just how cool these things were, but I was a bit unsettled. They felt too powerful, as if there were industrial lasers embedded in the black guns that kids should have no business playing with. What if we hit someone in the eye? But to the others, the pistols had basically turned into sniper rifles. Sure, we still had to be accurate at long range, but, but we could land a hit from much further away than what seemed normal. The discovery of the foreign set's abilities changed the game dynamically. Suddenly, Nick and I were deemed permanent squad leaders. We were the specialist, meant to be feared. That's when Peter started asking me to switch up gear with him. I told him he could have my set tomorrow, but after a few more games, he started whining and bitching about it. At 3 o'clock, we broke for snacks, soda, and water to replenish ourselves. We played long and hard so far, and other people in our neighborhood started to take notice of our antics, and we were having too much fun to notice or care what they thought. Being a nice guy, I relented and told Peter he can have my set for the next round of games that would last until we called it an evening. He had the best aim, and a maniacal little grin spread over his face, as he no doubt wondered what it would be like pulling off miracle shots as a professional sniper could. Uh, the thing was, though, Nick and I couldn't get the vest off. We tried everything, but the buckles were oddly configured little bastards. We couldn't even tell if we were pressing the right thing down on them. 
or if we had to wiggle them a certain way, or if it was the friction caused by the rust that locked them in place. We eventually gave up and had our indoor snack break with them still on, looking like dorks, somewhat to the amusement of others. Even though I couldn't get my vest off, I still traded guns with Peter. That seemed good enough for him. Holding the cheap gray plastic in my hand, I knew it would take a little while to get used to its limitations. As the day wore on and cooled a bit with the setting sun, I started taking my first hits without the advantage of longer range, and I really began to take notice of the strange quirks of the vest. For one, it was uncomfortable. The leather straps that went over my shoulders and around my stomach would have been comfortable if they weren't so tight. On top of this, the metal plate on the back side of the hit detection unit pressed tightly against my skin was cold, never warming to my body temperature. Also, once I took a hit for the first time, I felt a small tingle of electricity come from the back of the plate. It was really small, however. Less than that of a static shock. I didn't even notice it most of the time, but it was there. I couldn't tell if it was deliberate, like some sort of falling impact. I couldn't tell if it was deliberate, like some sort of failing impact feedback, or more like something bigger. Being contained, but leaking out ever so slightly each time a laser strand was close enough to be detected by the circle in the front. But the oddest thing of all were the power lines nearby. They were old and buzzed often in cycles, but whenever I drew near them, they seemed to either buzz louder or start buzzing if they were quiet at the time. I had learned about electrical fields in science class that last year of middle school, and I thought that something in the hitbox might have been causing some sort of interference, but I didn't really think about how powerful the battery would have been to do such a thing. I did, however, begin to feel unsafe hauling it around. And thinking back, I suddenly remember the moment my dad had turned it on for the first time. In the store. I thought nothing of it back then, but when he did that, the fluorescent light above us flickered, just briefly. I had grown up with a fear of electricity. Outlets always scared the crap out of me as a kid, as if simply touching any part would electrocute me. A gut feeling told me something was wrong with this toy. I now wish I had said something, or called off the game completely. After the first game following snacks, when I let the other team use both of the black guns, we, we got creamed. Peter gave us his brother Nick to even the score. He joined Devin and I after the 60 second countdown that was used to get the team separated from one another. We headed out, decided to go on patrol instead of making a base this time, as Devin never liked to sit around and wait for the opposition to find us. Peter's team must have been doing a good job at hiding, because we couldn't find them after two sweeps of the block. We looked behind every one of our houses, covered the adjacent block, and still found no sign of them. It was a good idea to separate the team a bit, so I wasn't taken down in a single ambush. But I always hated breaking up completely and going on patrol alone. But Peter and his little sneaky bastard gang wanted to play things this way. So we had little choice but to separate and cover more ground. I checked to make sure Devin and Nick had their walkie-talkie sets to the proper channel. And we headed our separate ways. Now alone, my senses heightened. I could feel the beat to sweat on my forehead and hear the faint buzzing of the drooping power lines. It was quiet and the air was still. Everyone else in the neighborhood had gone inside. Getting tired of the room, I started walking down the middle of the street, putting myself in the open. If someone moved to take a shot at me, I might react in time. Maybe not. It was, after all, just a game, and I was growing impatient and wanting them to come out. I got my wish. As I walked down the empty street just in front of my old house, Brian leapt out of the bushes, took aim, and fired at me. I heard the buzz, I felt the tingle, and I looked down to see the red lights disappear. Proud of his kill, Brian smiled and walked over to me, despite being a bit pissed off that his team decided to highlight pussies this round. I still thought of a little compliment to give him. It just never left my mouth. Just as he stepped up in front of me, I heard a loud pop in the distance. It sounded electrical, like a transformer had just blown, and at the same time, our walkie-talkies let out a loud but brief burst of static. Brian and I looked around, maybe expecting to see sparks raining down from a power pole or something. We waited a few minutes, still out in the open. Brian staying with me, despite being on the opposite team. The pup had taken us out of the game. It startled us. We eventually settled down again and we got ready to part ways. 
Brian back to the hiding spot and myself into the dead zone. But then, God, that, that horrible smell. I knew what it was. I, I think everybody does. That stinging stench of electrical burn. It's similar to dust burning off in a heater. But whereas that aroma is almost pleasant in a way, an electrical burn is a threatening smell you never want to experience. The last time I had was when our microwave practically exploded last year, which was unpleasant. With the possibility of a fire being nearby, we dropped the game and, using Brian's walkie-talkies, tried to get in touch with Peter and Gil. We got no response the first few times we tried to contact them, but on the fifth try, some feedback suggested that someone on the other end was holding down the transponder button. No one on the other end spoke, but we still heard something. Brian had to turn up the volume all the way to hear it. It was faint sobbing. Worried for our friends, we ran off together, scouring the neighborhood. It took us ten minutes to see Devin, who had spotted us first and was waving us down from the edge of the borderline of the playing field, the furthest possible sidewalk from the last block of the neighborhood. Stepping out onto the road from it made you dead. At least if anybody were to see you do it. We rushed over to him and saw Gil exclaiming the sharp incline by the side of the road, where a storm drain feeds runoff water down into a ditch-like area that was often muddy. It was overgrown with weeds and vines that climbed up the nearby cedar tree, which condensed into an ugly little forest typically occupied by drunks and garbage. For reasons we never really understood, this area on the edge of our battlefield, that was Nick's favorite hiding spot. He would sometimes still be in the ditch, eyes peeking out at street level, after the entire opposing team was already dead, next to Gil was Peter, in a way I've never seen him before. He was in a state of shock, rocking back and forth very gently in a fetal position. I asked everyone what had happened, but Gil wasn't around at the time and knew nothing about it. Peter had yet to say a word, and Nick was nowhere in sight. I tried to coax an answer from Peter, but he just looked back at me with saucer eyes. When I started shaking him, and demanded to know what happened. He murmured something. But it was so quiet, he might as well just mouth it silently. To this day, however, the closest thing I could think of to what he said was, I, I saw him. I shot him. Peter didn't give me a straight answer, but I still had a deep and increasing worry that something terrible had happened to Nick. Maybe the hitbox had electrocuted him. It was morbid, but that was the conclusion my mind instantly came up to. Gil, Brian, Devin, and I searched the area. Sinking into the mud on occasion, I sniffed the air, smelling the electrical burn again. Every second that passed by that we didn't find Nick in pain, or worse, was a small relief. But we didn't find a trace of him at all. Until we started heading back to Peter. Hidden in some overgrowth on the incline, the red color now distinguishable in the grass, were Nick's shoes. Gil looked at him closer, but when he tried to pick them up, Peter suddenly shouted, Don't touch them. Gil abided this request. Panic overtook the four of us that were still in reality, and we quickly ran to Devin's house, the closest of our current, the closest to our current position, and told his parents. They finally called the police when we managed to convince them that we weren't pulling a prank and we really couldn't find Nick. The rest of the day was hell, but at least it went by quickly. The police arrived and so did everybody's parents. Peter's father took him home. He was too traumatized to help the police anyway. As more cop cars arrived, we explained everything about what we were doing. One of the cops even mentioned how he had noticed us earlier that day while he was on patrol. The search party started around sunset, and all the while, we were stuck outside in the heat, sweating like crazy on the side of the road as our hearts started racing. The police had little to go on, and no other witnesses other than Peter, who they knew they would need to talk right away. I was the first one to suggest them finding the hit sensor box on the gun from the laser tag set. That made them a little curious. I explained the device as much as I could, even the tingling feeling I felt. They may have concluded that the toy sounded dangerous, but it was still just a toy. Nevertheless, they decided they wanted to take the foreign set in for further investigation. I had no arguments. After what might have happened to Nick, I wanted nothing to do with that set anymore. Or for that matter, 
laser tag and guns. I knew the game and whatever form it could have taken after this day was tainted though. They quickly found Peter's gun, dropped in the tall grass right where he had been sitting. Nick was discovered soon after, not far from his shoes, but even with their help, I couldn't get my vest off. The damn thing felt like it was permanently strapped to my body. It finally took Devin's father, bringing a pair of metal shears from his garage to get the hitbox off of me. And he had to work to cut through the thick leather straps, but at least I was free. Safe. The police took the device and began their search for the other. Only, like Nick, they never found it. Over the following weeks, they combed the entire area for both the hitbox and its wearer, even dredging up mud to see if it had sunken into it. I began to have visions of it exploding and a bright nuclear fireball vaporizing Nick, but I kept that nightmare to myself. The twins' parents, they must have suffered more than I did. I knew it was my fault. Despite all the assurances that day and the ones that followed from the police, Nick was never found. His disappearance made local news and then state news. No suspects were ever named. Every time I walked by the missing children's board in Walmart, I saw his face, haunting me, staring at me above the description and the number to call. I saw that poster hanging for years, until I went off to college and left my old town and friends behind, all of which were irrevocably shattered by the incident. In my senior year, I came out for winter break. By now, I had invented that reality I mentioned earlier. I shed the idea of the laser tag toy killing him out of my mind, coming to believe, like the town did, that Nick had just ended up another vanished or abducted child never to return. Coming home, I had flashbacks of his funeral, two years after he disappeared, where I wasn't able to look his parents or Peter in the eye from across Nick's empty casket. The past didn't stay dead. When I came home, my mother told me, in a shallow voice, that Peter had been calling recently, asking for me every other day. She told me I should go see him. I didn't want to, but I had to. I walked over to his house, where he still lived with his parents. The place had gone to hell, the paint was peeling off, the grass was so tall that the trees could have been sprouting, and once I was let in, the smell of alcohol was nearly overpowering. With as much motivation as a zombie, Peter's dad rejoined his wife on the couch, where they both lifelessly watched the television. Eight years later, Nick's death still left a scar on the household. I trudged upstairs and into a dirty, crowded mess of the place would have fit right in on an episode of Hoarders. And there was a forbidden detail buried under the trash bag of beer cans that was blocking the television. I could see a Nintendo 64 on the floor. As crazy as it sounds, it must have been unused ever since that day, as Nick's GoldenEye copy was still plugged into it. This place reeked of despair. I desperately wanted to leave. But if Peter wanted to talk, if he had answers, then I had to meet him. He was in his room, also a disaster area. Empty energy cans lie on the floor. I can see that he had grown an unruly beard before he turned around on his computer chair. After exiting some MMORPG that I was unfamiliar with, I greeted him as kindly as possible. I could see the sadness in his sunken eyes, but what he was really hiding was his anger. When he spoke to me, it was in what I can only describe as restrained barks. He must have had nothing but hatred for me, which I didn't blame him for, and he was struggling to control it. And suddenly, he just started laying it all out there getting it off his chest at long last. His parents had been sending him to a therapist for all eight years since that day. And he said that she had helped and he was making slow progress. He hated the bitch inside because she didn't believe him when he shared his account of the events. He then told me that he had just started going to a psychiatrist and hoped that he'd believe him. Understanding his anger and now feeling nothing but pity I talked with him calmly and reasonably. He eventually did relax some after getting all that contempt he had for me out. He took a deep breath and his whole body shuddered, as if in anticipation for a forthcoming grand revelation. 
that's just what I got. As much as it hurt, the truth, at last, and that dreaded vindication I mentioned at the start of our story, I never returned to the house that day to retrieve the box, assuming the police would take it. And that was just what I got. As much as it hurt, the truth, at last, and that dreaded vindication that I mentioned at the start of our story, I never returned to this house that day to retrieve the box, assuming the police would take it. But I watched as Peter reached deep under his bed, the space looking like an unnavigatable garbage dump, and pulled that black box that I had seen in my dreams many times. And he took off the rotted moist cover and the smell of mold exploding from the inside. But it was what he took out of the box that made me truly sick to my stomach. It was the missing hit sensor box. Only, the frontal plastic shell had been clearly warped and scarred by extreme heat. It had partially melted over the black circle in the middle. The leather straps were charred. Holding back vomit, Peter almost gleefully flipped over the device, as if in his damaged mind I was supposed to like what he was showing me. The metal back had mostly survived intact, but there was a large dent in the middle where it made contact with the battery. The hinge, however, no longer locked in place, and the back plate swung open freely to reveal the interior of the shell. There was no sign of the battery itself. Its compartment was solid black, and there seemed to be dried remnants of battery acid. I can only surmise that the battery had exploded in its entirety. However much energy it had inside of it, it must have been incredibly lethal. Justin, Peter shouted at me, snapping me out of my dazed, sickly stupor. He then proceeded to call me an idiot repeatedly for not reading the instructions. I whimpered in reply, telling him that it, I didn't see any. In one broad stroke, Peter tore out the styrofoam, which I had noticed had already broken in several pieces. Under what remained a fractured white block was a thin yellow pamphlet. The guns were printed in black and white on the cover. Now both terrifying and racking me with guilt, he began to shove the moldy instruction book in my face, thrusting it until it was a few inches from my eyes. Each time he turned the page, he yelled at me to read it. Although I was shaking, I, I tried my best to do so. Most of the instructions were in Arabic, but there were little warning boxes labeled with an exclamation point and a triangle that were in multiple languages, including French, Spanish, and English. Every page had an image of proper use. The boys from the box cover demonstrating various ways of hitting one another with lasers, or simply how to attach the equipment. Other than a few instances of the radioactive trefoil symbol, the warning seemed innocuous at first. Don't aim at the eyes, take a break from playing sometimes, don't use it in the rain, etc. I told Peter I didn't understand what went wrong. I knew enough by this point that he had figured out what killed Nick, and he had hidden his brother's vest in the box. I told him I'm very sorry again, but I didn't understand. Before he showed me the last page, Peter said he kept the burnt, twisted vest so that he could figure out what happened on his own. Maybe he thought the police wouldn't be able to. I can't hope to know. Calmer now. He turned the last page and handed me the book. My stomach churned again. The warning was simple, and like the rest of the product, poorly translated. Danger. Critical hit zone. These words were under a diagram of the black hit circle, where an arrow pointed to that small center light and there was a descriptive image of one of the boys shooting the other, a demonic smile and a look of victory on his face as he so happily sent the other boy from the box cover into oblivion. The other boy, who was screaming out in raw pain and terror as his vest exploded and his body turned into fine particles of ash. But Peter wasn't done. He had one last thing to show me. As he reached for the top of the bookcase in his room, I noticed a faint scratch marks on the metal backing of the destroyed hit box. It looked like somebody had taken a screwdriver to it in order to violently scrape something off. Peter had shown me a small cork plastic vial that he had taken off the bookshelf. Inside was a solid plastic gathering of what appeared to be soot. He gave me a sickening smile and told me, It's been a long time since you've seen Nick, hasn't it? Say hi to Nick. I felt myself heave and hit the floor, but nothing came up. My mind scrambled trying to accept what I had just seen or was told. To imagine the fear, the pain, as my friend burnt up into ash so small that it blew away in the light wind. Killed by his own brother, eagle-eyed Peter, who had scored a critical hit. 
Before I turned and ran out of the house, Peter holding what was left of his twin brother had some advice. I'd see a therapist, Justin. It would help. There, I got it all down. Happy Dr. Struss. Whether or not anybody reads of this, I, I don't care anymore. Maybe, maybe in time, recording what happened really will help me. I don't know. <sighs> what I do know is that for an entire day, I carried around what I assume was some sick, perverted Eastern European toy maker's idea of a fun game for the kiddies. A walking time bomb waiting for a bullseye hit. How all of its previous owners managed to miss. I have no idea. If you decide to hunt down another set for some sick, dark fantasy, and you're stupid enough to buy it after reading this journal that some asshole stole and posted online, try not to play with anybody whose shot's worth a damn. There was no way of telling what was real or what was made up on creepy toys forums. I think when I first read this post, I dismissed it as another made-up story. But I did kind of like the Cold World Industrial Atomic Toy aspect of it. It turns out that I had a final reply that I never saw. Maybe just some hours before the forum was shut down permanently. I, I don't think many, if many members saw this post before the site was no more. Well, here it is below. The box you described sounds much like the ones I saw in my neighbor's attic. He was a collector of strange things. His box was in very good condition. What the year of 1986? And it still had its original instructions. And I too have saw the image of the boy shooting the other, blowing him up. <laughs> what a terrific child's toy. It's impossible to say who made it, as there is no company name on the box. So it would be very difficult to find out how many were made. The language on the box and most of the instructions is certainly Belarusian. I wish I could tell you more about the product. But sadly, even as a collector, this box is missing the actual weapons and vest. How strange that a full set would make it all the way to a thrift store in America. I hope therapy gets you through this time in your life. Take care.